This morning, we want to talk about a sensitive topic, money. Uh, why are we talking about money this morning? Well, let me clarify a few fears that some uh, may have or some suspicions some might have. Whenever you walk into a church and you hear, oh, you hear the church, a preacher talk about money. Uh, some suspect that the church is doing some sort of a financial campaign, raising money for a particular uh, need, a particular capital campaign. Well, I want to assure you, we're not raising money for anything around this building, this facility. Uh, so no worries about that. Others think, well, perhaps the church needs money. Um, by God's grace, our congregation is generous and is giving to the Lord faithfully. So it's not like our budget needs money and we have to have this sermon on giving so that our our giving would increase. Uh, not at all. So why are we talking about money? Well, first of all, um, because in my pastorate here, I have not addressed the theme of, of possessions in an explicit way in more than eight years, eight plus years. Uh, I have to confess to you, at times, I felt uh, some pride in me that I've been here eight years and I've not had to talk about money because our church did not need to have a financial crisis that would lead me to talk about money. I thought, ah, we're doing so good. We just, I don't have to preach on that. Um, and I felt a little inner pride in me over that matter until the elders and the deacons said, hey, you have not ever taught our people how to think biblically about possessions. I thought, ooh, I have not. So I stand corrected. And I thought, I need to come to you and bring uh, this portion of God's Word as well. Second of all, why are we going to talk about money? Because Jesus talked about money. So if Jesus didn't have a hard time talking about money, and if Jesus felt it necessary that he, the crowds to whom he's speaking need to hear teaching on how to think biblically, how to think with a kingdom perspective about their possessions, then when I looked at the fact that I've not taught on money, it was, it was no longer a reason to be proud of. It was something that I had to repent of. So if Jesus taught about money, it is right for the church to teach God's people how to think well about possessions. So the elders and I, when we have, when we have gathered a few months ago and talked about how do we want to talk about possessions, how do we want to teach our congregation about this topic, um, we taught, thought about combining two, two topics together that um, that, we, that we thought it was, would be helpful for our congregation, marriage and money. Uh, we talked two weeks ago, or the last two weeks, on marriage. And today and next Sunday, uh, we will talk about possession. So if you missed uh, and you want to know more about how to think about marriage, consider looking online and uh, listening to the sermons last two weeks. Today and next week, we will be dealing with uh, the topic of possessions. For those of you who are new to our congregation, if you're visiting with us, um, our usual diet of teaching, public teaching, is to preach expositionally through books of the Bible. Uh, you are happening to visit us at a time when we are go taking four weeks through these topical messages on marriage and money. This morning, uh, the theme that we want to look at is our hearts and possessions. If Jesus talked about money, we want to think through carefully and hear well what he taught us, what he taught his disciples, what he taught the crowds about possessions. So I encourage you and invite you to open God's Word to Luke chapter 12, we'll be reading from verse 13 to verse 21. Luke chapter 12, from verse 13 
to 21. And you, if you did not bring a Bible with you, you may grab a Bible provided in chairs in front of you. You may open it on page number 871. And as you open there, if you don't own a Bible, uh, or if you don't own an ESV Bible, we'd love for you to keep the Bible that's in the pews and take it home and read it. We'd love for you to have it. Let's read God's Word. Let's hear God's Word together. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For once life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and for the teaching he has given us about how to think about possessions so that we may not be fools, so that we may not be fools in your eyes, so that we may not be unprepared for the day when you uh, call us to give an account for all that you have given us. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to be teachable, to hear well what you have to say, what you have to instruct us from your word uh, about possessions. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. When we consider how and what Jesus taught about possessions, about money, one of the lessons that that Jesus drew home uh, is that our attitudes towards possessions is a reflection of our hearts and of what we worship. Let me give you some examples. Uh, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in, in Matthew six nineteen through 21, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal and if that's all Jesus said, we might thought he's just trying to help us be good, faithful stewards, to invest in the, in the places where it really matters, where things won't be taken away. But Jesus went on and said something else. He went on and said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Later in the same sermon, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In other words, according to Jesus, money can become a God in our lives, a master in our lives, and serving the master of money will not allow us to serve God, nor will God allow us to serve the master of money. These two masters don't go well together, serving both. It's not like you can have two jobs, your full-time job and then your, you know, an extra few hours on the side to make a few more money. You, you, don't, you don't do that with God and money. With serving God, you say, I serve God full-time, and I give him 40 hours a week. But I, I, just, need, I just need to do some extra stuff for, for this other master called mammon, called money. God says, you, you can't serve both masters. You will either serve one or the other. Prior to Jesus' teaching on possessions, John the Baptist spoke about our attitudes to possessions as, as a fruit of repentance. Remember John the Baptist, his message was, prepare uh, for, for the coming of the Lord is near. And he called people to repentance. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. And the crowds at one point asked, literally, John, what then shall we do? And in Luke chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist replied. And he spoke to three categories of people. And here's, notice if you notice, see if you notice a similar thread through his answer. He said, he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Isn't it surprising to notice that John the Baptist connected the fruit of repentance uh, to show up and to be manifested in our attitudes toward possessions. Prior to John the Baptist in the Old Testament, God had given many instructions to his people about how to use their possessions. Now, we want to say wealth is not an evil. Possessions are not evil. Deuteronomy 8, 18 the God said to the people of Israel, the second generation before they were going to enter into Canaan, God said to them, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. I think it's important for us to recognize God is not against possessions. Yet the desire to get wealth and to have possessions easily becomes a trap for us to forget God and make us depend less on God and more on what we own. Also, the desire to own possessions affects our relationships. It turns us deeper toward our own self-centered ways. The prophets of the Old Testament have been rebuking God's people over and over and over again uh, concerning how they misused their possessions and how they treated people poorly because of their greed for possession. Even the Old Testament Sabbath was a means not only of asking people to take one day of rest, 
and worship the Lord. But in, in not asking them not to work, it, it really had an effect on their income. It meant instead of working seven days a week and making money seven days a week as, as the Gentiles did, it meant being content with one-seventh less than what they would normally get. Uh, Bible interpreter Blomberg says, God wanted his people to realize that making money was not the be-all and end-all of life. So even in the Sabbath, there was a, an indirect implication or application that they should not be working seven days a week so that they actually don't think about depending on money all the time. So why are we talking about money? Because Jesus taught about money. Because our worship of God is reflected in what we do with our wallets and how we think about possessions. The Bible tells us that all our possessions are a gift from the Lord. He gives us possessions. He gives us the strength to earn our possessions. We see that God has blessed some people in the Bible with tremendous possessions. Job, both at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, we're told about the great amount of possessions that God has given him. We see Abraham, we see Isaac, we see Jacob, we see others in Scripture. So we want to start off this sermon about possessions, saying that possessions are not evil. Possessions are a gift from the Lord. Yet, at the same time, Scripture teaches us that the lures that come with the desires for possessions are dangerous for our hearts. And this morning, our focus is to listen to the caution that Jesus gives towards the lures that possessions can pose to us when we approach them with careless hearts. When we approach them without thinking what exactly is going on in our desires at the level of the desires of our hearts towards possessions. This morning, as we look at the passage we read, we have two major points. If you like taking notes, here are the two points we're going to look at. One, guard against all covetousness. Guard against all covetousness. Second, seek to be rich toward God. Seek to be rich toward God. Let's look at the first of these points. Guard towards all or against all covetousness. Notice what was the occasion that got Jesus to teach about possessions in this situation. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus was teaching the crowd um, and a man came forth to solicit Jesus' help uh, to resolve a conflict between him and his brother. Apparently, the conflict between him and his brother was over the issue of dividing up the inheritance. Now, we don't know the details of the situation. It's possible that the parents divided the inheritance uh, equally and one of the brothers wanted to keep more for himself than the parents actually decreed. And now that the parents perhaps may have been dead, uh, the, the older brother or one of the brothers is, is doing what he wants with the possession and is not sharing it equally with the brother, perhaps. It's also possible in Jewish customs, the older brother often got more than the, than the rest of the brothers. It's possible that this was going on here so that this other brother is looking at the smaller piece of his inheritance and he's not happy with it and he's jealous over the fact that his brother got more. So this man is coming to Jesus and says, uh, Jesus, can you, can you tell my brother to share the inheritance with me? Now, we could commend this man for coming to Jesus with his troubles. That's a commendable thing to do. 
you have a trouble? You have certain desires that are troubling you? Bring them to Jesus. We can even say that there's nothing wrong to desire to own a portion of the inheritance that your parents leave you. But Jesus, in hearing the request of this man, Jesus is speaking up on something. And Jesus, in this situation, chooses not to address and not to answer the specific request that this man brings to Jesus. Instead of helping this man with his request with his brother, Jesus actually turns to deal with his heart. And this might surprise us. Sometimes we come to God asking him to help us with certain particular situations, and the response we might get from God is, is not to fix the situation, but to let the, the difficult situation expose the hidden dangers of our own hearts. Sometimes God will not fix a problem, not because God doesn't want to fix the problem, but because He realizes there's a deeper problem with our own hearts than the problem we think we have. And our heart's problems are more significant than the external problems that we think we're dealing with. That's exactly what seems to be happening here. Jesus uses this request from this man to fix his money-related conflict with his brother. And instead of fixing the conflict, Jesus seeks to address the heart. The heart of this man and actually the heart of the entire crowd that was there. In this particular case, the danger Jesus exposes is the, the craving of the, of the human heart for possessions. The Bible calls such craving for possessions covetousness. Covetousness. The command Jesus gives in verse 15, he says, Take care. Take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, what is covetousness and why should we guard against it? And later we'll look at how do we guard against it. What is covetousness? The definition of covetousness, one of the, one of the dictionaries uh, describes the, the word for covetousness in this way. It's a state of desiring to have more than once do. Covetousness is another word for greediness. In the Old Testament, the word for coveting can also be translated simply as desiring. Now, desires are not all evil. And desires in and of themselves are not evil. But not all desires are good desires. Some desires are geared towards an evil direction or bad direction. They are dangerous desires. The, the bad desires are the inordinate desires. Those things are just a little too strong than what they ought to be. Uh, bad desires are those that are ungoverned desires. Those desires that we can't control. They, they control us. We can't control them. They're, they're typically bad desires. Or selfish desires. Desires that are geared towards ourselves. The self-centeredness. So here's, a, here's how one pastor, Pastor John Piper, defined covetousness. Uh, he said, covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Covetousness is desiring something so much that you use, lose your contentment in God. He goes on to say the opposite of covetousness is contentment in God. 
when contentment in God decreases, covetousness for gain increases. He goes on to describe what Paul says in Colossians 3.5, that covetousness is idolatry. Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's idolatry because the contentment that the heart should be getting from God, it starts getting from something else. So John Piper says, covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Or losing your contentment in God so that you start seeking it elsewhere. Covetousness. Here's a few things that if we look at all the verses in the Bible about covetousness, here's what we can say about it. Covetousness is a disease of the heart. Jesus describes that coveting comes from within the heart. Mark 7, 20 and 22. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. In this text, Jesus says not only that coveting is a disease of the heart, but it pollutes us, it stains us, it defiles us. Have you ever thought that the desire for more possession defiles you? Wow. Coveting is also a manifestation of our sinful nature. The Apostle Paul, when he speaks about the way in which sinful, rebellious people rebel once God leaves them to the, to the desires of their hearts, once God leaves them into, into their rebellion, here's how it manifests. Romans 1.29, they, def- they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Amazingly, coveting is a manifestation of our enslavement to sin. Here's another truth about coveting. Coveting must be exposed and fought against among God's people. In Ephesians 5.3, Paul says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now we know we should flee sexual immorality. We know that that should not even be mentioned among us. But somehow we forget that covetousness is also in the same category. And we don't talk about it as often. And we're not on guard as often. We know when we fall into sexual immorality, it's pretty clear, it's much more difficult to notice, to observe, to see when your heart crosses the line into coveting. The first ten commandments. The first one starts with a commandment to have no other God besides God. And the last one ends with you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions, his wife, his goats, his animals. Covetousness is a characteristic also of false teachers. In the New Testament, um, false teachers are exposed as being motivated by greed and exploiting the people of God for money. Second Peter chapter 2. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They have hearts trained in greed. In other words, false teachers are not interested to be faithful in teaching God's word 
faithfully. They're interested in teaching only smooth things so they can keep getting paid by the church. And the church who likes to hear only smooth things will have no problem paying false teachers. Illustration, when Paul was taking goodbye from the elders at Ephesus, he described himself, among other things, in this way. He said in Acts 20, verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. One of the qualifications for elders or for deacons is that they must be free from the love of money. And I love what John Piper pointed out. Covetousness chokes off spiritual life. And he, he pointed out to a parable that I actually did not connect until I read him. Um, he said, it makes so much sense. Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower. Jesus gives four soils. Remember the story, the parable? And each parable re- represents a different state of the heart. One of the, one of the soils is, is a soil of, of thorns. The seed was thrown among the thorns. And here's how Jesus interprets the particular scenario, this third scenario of a, of a, of a word of God being or falling into an area where there are thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke word and it becomes unfruitful. I wonder if you've ever considered that when we allow our hearts to be unbridled and free to desire the other things, that simple desire can choke out the growth of the word in fruitfulness in our own hearts. Why? Because we set our desires on having more things rather than being content in what God gives us. Another thing about covetousness is not only does it choke our growth in spiritual, in spiritual growth, but covetousness never comes alone. It always brings with it other harmful desires. And this is the point of the passage we read earlier in our service that Pastor Taylor read. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction? It's not that, that, that possessions are evil. It's the love to be rich. It's the love for money. When we let our hearts be uncontrolled in our desires to have more, such desires bring with it a host of other desires that are destructive for our souls and for our relationships. Consider, consider the, the damage that money makes even between a husband and a wife. The two that have pledged their love for one another. How often the way they spend money becomes a root of destructive behavior in marriage. Watch out. Covetousness never comes alone. Worst of all, covetousness can make a wreck of our own faith. Some have turned away from God. And some will continue to turn away from God because of their love for money. Here's the point. Greed and covetousness is rooted in the heart. It is a manifestation of our bondage to sin. It should be exposed and fought against among the people of God. It should not characterize the leaders of the church. It chokes out our spiritual growth 
And it never comes alone, but brings with it harmful desires. Why should we guard against covetousness? Because of all these reasons. But notice what Jesus says about why we should guard against covetousness in this particular passage. Verse 15, Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This explanation reveals one window into what's wrong with coveting. When we allow our hearts to covet, when we allow our hearts to covet, we're acting on the idea that our lives are defined by what we have. That our happiness is defined by what we have. That our safety is defined by what we have. We attach happiness, safety, worth, value to what we own. And Jesus wants to tell us life is not about what we have. For some of us, it's the amount of possessions we may have. For others, you might say, it's, I, don't, I, don't, I try not to be a hoarder of things. For you, it's not so much the, the desire to have more possessions, but it's the craving to have the good possessions. The possessions that have a brand. The possessions that have a, a quality to it. And it's not just about wanting something that's quality so that you don't have to buy it again in six months. I'm not talking about wanting to have good quality stuff so you don't have to buy something else next year, another car because this one break, broke down. I'm talking about those things that you like to have, and it's not about reliability. It's about the image that you have towards yourself. You start feeling better if you drive a more luxurious car. You start having a better impression about yourself. You start thinking that other people will view you better if you wear nicer clothes. You think of how people perceive you or the society you are among now that you have certain things. Often, dear friends, when we want to have quality, it's not, it's not really just reliability that we're looking for. It's really the, that perception of self-image and self-worth that we, our hearts, attach to things that we might own. We look at what the media around us values. We look at what people appreciate, what they crave for, and we want and allow those cravings to, to, to seep up into our own hearts. It's not wrong to enjoy material blessings and possessions. It's wrong to think that you, can enjoy, that you can't enjoy life without them. It's not wrong to, to, to enjoy what God gives you. But it's wrong to think that you can't have joy in life unless God gives you those things. Jesus wants us to learn this lesson that our life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. In order to drive home this point, Jesus gives a parable, an illustration. That shows that life is not about what we own. But, and this parable gives us not only a negative picture of what not to do, but it gives us a hint of what we should do instead. So how do we guard against, against covetousness? The second point we see in this passage is the point that Jesus makes. Seek to be rich towards God. Seek to be rich towards God. Let's look at the parable. The parable is about a rich man who got even richer. Now, in some ways, I thought, Jesus, 
Lord, why didn't you choose a parable? Because parables, you can make them up, right? I mean, the whole point is you can make a story to drive home a point. Lord, why did you not choose a, po- a parable about a poor man who becomes rich? That, that, would, that would be better. That would drive the point home easier, quicker. Because, because oftentimes we might think it's those who don't have money that, that desire to have money, and, and that's a problem. And, and I don't know why the Lord chose to, to give a parable about a rich man who got even richer. That we should not assume that only rich people have the problem of coveting. Covetousness is a lure for everyone, not only for rich people. The problem is not whether or not you are rich. The problem is how you look at your possessions and what you aspire to do with your possessions, whether you are poor or rich. Notice what this man aspired to do with his possessions. He said in verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now first, this man thought that he can satisfy his soul with his possessions. He's attaching being merry, being happy, being satisfied to the fact that he's got, he's got early retirement, enough that will not wear him out or not wear out before he dies. He has no concern. He thinks he, he now has everything he needs to be happy. He's considering his soul's happiness based on the security and on the abundance of what he's able to acquire or has already acquired. Second, he has no regard for what happens to him and to his soul after he dies. He's not thinking the Lord could call me home tomorrow. And all this stuff that I've accumulated, whose will it be? He's not even thinking about that. He's only thinking about his life in terms of this earth, in terms of the decisions that he has to make for his own happiness now. And therefore, because he's not thinking about what will happen after I die, he's not a good steward of what God has given him. Third, he has no regard at all for, being, for giving to the Lord, giving to the poor. Uh, as a good Jew, which Jesus gives a parable to Jewish people, he must have been a, a Jewish rich man in this parable. As a good Jew, he, he should have known better from the Old Testament that he was supposed to give to the Lord and he was supposed to give to the poor. But he's doing none of it. He planned it all on himself. It's amazing how self-centeredness shows up very clearly in what we do with our resources. Now, some people think, oh, pastor, if I was the man in that parable, oh, I wouldn't do that. If I was, if I was already rich, I would give already to the Lord. Uh, if anything, I'm praying the Lord might give me so I can give him more when I have more. Um, I would give abundantly if I was a rich man. Friends, don't assume that. Don't assume that. Generosity towards God is not caused by whether or not you have abundantly. If anything, the lesson this parable teaches us, and particularly the fact that the man in the parable is already a rich man, the lesson we get it from it is that if you have more resources, it will not change your heart to becoming more generous. Having more money does not transform self-centeredness into generous hearts. Here's a man who was already rich and got even richer, but in getting more, he continued to think only of himself. As he probably thought even before, he got even richer. Having more money will not change the quality of your heart. 
So don't wait to have more money before you commit to be generous. Don't wait to have more money before you decide to fight against covetousness. Begin cultivating an attitude of generosity toward God now, even when it feels like you don't have enough. Fighting against covetousness is something we should do even when we don't have money or even when we don't have enough. Um, I'm going to pick here the, 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 the population in our congregation who, whom I assume has the least amount of money on a regular basis, and that's the college students. Is that fair? Fair, yes. I assume, here's what I want to talk to you about. Having or, or waiting or thinking that you can wait on, on guarding your heart against covetousness until you actually have money is a false calculation. You want to fight against covetousness even now when you don't have money. You want to fight against it now and to cultivate a, a desire to be content with what God gives you now and be happy in what God gives you now. Cultivate that now. Practice being happy in God even when you have little or none. Second, practice giving to the Lord from the very little that you have. I remember when I was in college, I started the year, uh, went back to school from Ohio to Chicago. My parents gave me some money uh, to have for the, for the fall year. And uh, it came time to, uh, for the plate in the service to go around. And I looked at my wallet. I had money at that time. It was great. The only problem was my parents gave me $20 bills. That seems an awful amount, a lot of money. So my heart struggled. Should I give a $20 bill in the plate or not? And the battle went on for a few seconds. Eventually, I ended up putting the money in the plate. Friends, it's that battle that matters. With the little that you have, with some of the, perhaps some, the money that some of your, par- your parents are giving your friends, you say, this is all I got for the rest of the semester. Friends, you're giving to the Lord. The Lord is not trying to rob you. You're giving to the Lord. Now, here's the crazy part about that story. It only happened to me once. At the end of the service, a deacon comes and says, hey, listen, the, the Lord has put on my heart help you out today. And he gave me $200. No knowledge. He had no knowledge of the battle that went on in my own heart just half an hour earlier. Friends, don't think that the Lord is trying to take money from you. The Lord is giving you an opportunity to show your love for him. To give to him the things that you have little of that are precious to you. I'm not saying that every time you give to the Lord, the Lord will give back ten ten times more. Do not take that application from this sermon. I just know the Lord knows how to honor and care for His people when His people treasure Him. When His people have opportunity to show that they treasure Him. Cultivate now the desire to give to the Lord even when you feel like you have nothing. Remember, Jesus actually appreciated the widow who put only two pennies in the 
in the treasury of the temple. Jesus treasured that more than the abundant giving that others gave from the abundance of their possessions. Cultivate now, even as a student, a desire to give to the Lord generously, lovingly. And cultivate now that when the Lord will bless you to have more, that you will give more to the Lord. But don't wait to fight covetousness until you actually have a a full-time job and a lot of money and you think that now when you're poor, you don't have to fight covetousness. We all do, no matter what status of life we're in. Now, these principles are not only for college students, they're for all of us. Desire to grow in being rich toward God, not only towards yourself. What keeps us, what keeps us from being generous towards God? Now, for some people, it's the lack of understanding of the biblical teaching that what we do with our possessions actually shows up what, where our hearts are and what we value. If you are a Christian, but you never give to the Lord or have given just out of duty, out of guilt, something is off with the heart. And we want to encourage you to consider the biblical teaching that God is not trying to extort money out of us. He's not trying to get us to, to pay dues so that he would be happy with us. No, God wants, God wants us to be delighted in him. And one of the areas that shows truly, genuinely our delight in the Lord is how we treat our possessions toward the Lord. For others among us, we may be not generous towards God for another reason. We might look at our lives and say, ouch, I don't have much left at the end of the month. And the stumbling block to our generosity is that we spend it all on ourselves. Some of us can't give to the Lord because we don't have a budget that keeps our habits of spending under control and we we spend in the spear of the moment without actually thinking about the big picture. We don't track our expenses. We just hope that we make it to zero at the end of the month. And if we can't make it to zero at the end of the month, we have credit cards. And we'll just delay paying that credit card bill until the next month. It's amazing that we don't seem to worry about how much we spend on ourselves, and yet we seem to worry and know very well how much we are willing to give to the Lord. Did you notice that about yourself? You don't think twice. Have I spent too much on myself this month? But when it's time to give to the Lord, you're wondering, am I giving too much? If we allow our hearts to spend all our income on our needs, what does that say about how much we treasure God? For some of us, one of the tools to help us cultivate generosity towards the Lord is simply to start having a budget. Just Gain control over your spending habits on yourself. Friends, in an affluent and materialistic society, most people struggle to live within their means. And it does not matter how much you have. For some of us, it's not that we desire to have more. It's that we desire particular lifestyles that is above our income level. Or that is so tight to our income level that we actually have no room to give generously to the Lord. I love what C.S. Lewis said. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, he says, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, is up to the standard common among those with the same income as ours, 
we are probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it is too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our commitment to giving excludes them. Have you considered making lifestyle changes to free you to be able to give a portion of your income to the Lord? Are you intentionally watching your finances in such a way that you can, with, with, with generous heart, with joyfulness and freedom, you can give to the Lord rather than keeping all for yourself and feel stingy or feel that when the pastor gives a sermon on money that you go home guilty and, and feel like you need to give out a duty? Friends, do not give out a duty. Next week, we will talk about giving with joyfulness. But do not give merely out of duty. But what does it say when you all keep it to yourself and you're not freeing some of it for the Lord so that you can give it to Him and His purposes? Giving to the Lord is not about paying dues or fees to the church. It's about desiring to be rich towards the Lord because we know that the essence of our lives is not what we own. The essence of our lives is the Lord. (laughs) When the Lord is our life, dear friends, when the Lord is our life, and when we get that, we don't have a hard time. It's not as difficult to give to that which we truly believe to be our lives. Some of us desire only to increase our standard of living and have no desire to increase our standard of giving. May I speak here to encourage some of the younger generation among us? I want to encourage you to talk to the older saints among us, especially those who have been through the Great Depression. Learn from them how to live life with less and still enjoy it. Learn from them how they saved up for the future in times of dire needs. And at the same time, they also were generous towards the Lord. Friends, do you realize that the the most generous Believers in churches are older saints. And yet they have been the ones who lived through times when there's not so much luxury and and affluence among us. Blomberg says, Yesterday's luxuries need not always become today's necessities, even if everyone around you acquires them. In the last one or two years, I've had an on and off dialogue with Gloria Hoover, and she had shared with me how the generation she grew up in has learned to make choices of how to live not only within their means, but below their means so they can save up for the future and give to the Lord generously. Friends, some of these saints are dying off, are going to be with the Lord. And I want to encourage a younger generation, grab these saints, take them out to coffee, invite them over, and just ask them to talk to you about the way the Lord has taught them how to use their possessions in times when they were not so affluent, in times when, they, when the culture around them was not so affluent. Learn from them. Learn how to be good stewards. The Lord has taught them some wonderful lessons. and We would be impoverished if we just ignored the older saints who have learned some very valuable lessons. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Henry Blackaby said, when God returns, is he going to be pleased in the amount you've accumulated versus the amount you've given away? 
Is he going to be pleased with the amount you've invested in this world versus the amount you've invested in eternity? Why do we talk about money? It's not because we want your money. We don't. God wants your heart. And oftentimes, our possessions are the stumbling block between God and our full commitment to Him. Now, don't get me wrong. Some people can give money for the wrong motives. If we read the, the New Testament, the first major church, church discipline case was because some people gave money with the wrong motive and were killed for it. So I don't want to tell you that just giving money to the church somehow fixes your future. I don't want you to get away with that picture at all. But oftentimes, what we do with our money is a reflection of our heart. Our attachment to possessions, our attachment to, to thinking that life is about what we have, that is a problem. So guard against all covetousness. Seek to be rich towards God. And I'll leave you with a prayer from Psalm 119, 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that you are a God who knows what is happening in our hearts. And Lord, even, even what may look like normal desires, innocent desires, that we might have towards wanting more things. Father, even such desires may come from a heart that is attached to covetousness, that is careless about coveting, that, that, is, that is irresponsible about caring well for our souls and, and, and guarding against the desire for greediness. Father, forgive us that in such times we we actually turn away from thinking about our lives based on what you have made us to be, based on what Christ is for us. Father, forgive us that in our, in our greediness, we treasure more our stuff than Jesus. Father, forgive us that in our greediness, we think more of our lives based on what we have than based on what we are able to give to you joyfully and lavishly. And based on what you have given to us in Christ, Father, we pray that you renew in us a love for Christ so that we may desire to be rich towards you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.